Well, good morning again. You have your Bibles. We'll be in Acts, Acts chapter 17. And we will be looking at today, uh, it's entitled Sharing the Gospel. As you could probably tell from much of the service, we've been focusing on that aspect of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, one of the biggest challenges for us as Christians is actually telling other people about Jesus. It can be hard and it's scary as well. We are afraid something might happen to us. What? I don't, I don't know, at least not in the West here. Um, but maybe it's a fear of what others might think of us. Or maybe it just comes from deep insecurities. Regardless of this, our mission is to shine the light of Jesus Christ on those who are groping around in the darkness by sharing the gospel with them. There are people that you know, people that you work with, family, friends, people that you interact with, neighbors. They are groping in the darkness. They are searching and they are seeking for something and they don't even know what it is. God has placed you in this time. God has placed you in this place. God has put these people in your life so that you can tell them the gospel. I want to give you a brief background Paul has just had a semi-successful trip to Berea. When he arrived, he was taught in the synagogue, and the people, they were digging it. And they were listening, they were examining the scriptures, and many of the Jews believed, and even some prominent Greeks believed. But that success didn't last long. Jews from Thessalonica came, and they upset the crowd, so Paul had to leave. Paul left Silas and Timothy behind, probably to set up a church there, with instructions that they would join Paul ASAP, while Paul went 195 miles to Athens. And this is where our story begins in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler with, wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far away from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Or even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. And all God's people said, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we might behold wonderful things from your word, that we might see the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul spoke of it, and we might be encouraged to be people who speak also of the good news of Jesus Christ to all who we are with. Bless us, we pray, and Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you look at verses 16 and 17, we're going to see our first point, which is that Paul is provoked in his spirit by the idolatry that he sees. So Paul, as he was here in Athens, he saw many beautiful buildings and monuments. They were dedicated to false god after false god. He even saw the, saw the Parthenon a temple that was dedicated to the goddess of war, Athena. And there was even a place where 12 gods could be worshipped. Paul's spirit in him was provoked by this idolatry and by the spirituality that ignored Jesus Christ and didn't focus on the true and living God. He was probably troubled by their fear there in Athens of not wanting to miss any god at all of their fear of offending some minor god that they may a statue to and scribe it to the unknown god. Can you imagine being so worried that you might miss a god, that you make a statue called to the unknown god? How troubling would that be? They had a desire to worship anything, a desire to worship everything, but they didn't even know what they were worshiping. And so Paul is provoked either by anger or grief or a desire to convert them and is motivated to preach Jesus Christ. So why was he motivated? Well, first he's motivated that God would receive glory. Now, glory is understood to be essentially weight and fame. So it's really who God is, the real God. Everything that he is, his weight, how much worth he has, infiniteness, 
eternality, might, power, glory, majesty. But there's also his fame. Shouldn't everybody, if he's that kind of God, worship him? Shouldn't everybody give him that weight? So he wants that weight, the significance of who God is, and the fame, how he should be praised, to be pushed out to all. So that God would be made much of. So that's his first motivation. He's troubled by the worship of demons, the worship of self, and the shadows that he finds of religion. And so these things should not be acknowledged. They should not be worshipped. They should not be glorified because they are nothing. God, the true God, is everything. So that's his first motivation. His second motivation, he is afraid, fearful for others. Without Christ, a person is going to suffer the wrath of an eternal almighty God by receiving everlasting conscious torment in hell. Paul knew that without Christ paying for their sin and giving them his righteousness, they would be judged eternally and they would spend forever in conscious torment. He cares about them. Third, he's motivated to dialogue. He says he dialogued every day, first with the God worshipers, that was the Jews and the devout people in the synagogue. So he would go where the Jews were, the religious people were, those people without Christ, but having a shadow of religion, an idea of God, the true God, but who were not united to Christ. And they were lost, and they needed to put their trust in him, so he reasoned with them. But it says he also reasons with whatever random people he came across with in the market. So imagine he just goes to the market where everybody is, and he just starts talking with people and reasoning about this hope. And so Paul has this overcoming desire. He has these good motivations to proclaim Jesus Christ. This desire of Paul is not just something for an apostle. It is something for each and every one of us that we would have a desire to give this good news of Christ to the world, to all we see, to whoever God would put in our path. But then we move to verses 18 and to 21, and we see our second point, that we should overcome our fears of proclaiming Christ. What are these fears? They are usually based upon what I would call, and others have called, plausibility structures. So you look at me and say, what in the world is a plausibility structure? So these are ideas that the world pushes down upon us that exist almost every in every form of media in our culture. They are ideas that become real in our minds, even though they may not be true. They are just plausible. But they become a narrative in our culture that is so frequent that is so fluent and is so in your face that if you dare to say anything like Jesus Christ is the only way, then you're labeled a bigot, people filled with hate, and quite frankly, to the world, you are a heretic because you are going against their religion. 
which is no religion. It's a plausibility structure. And the world says it just is. And you all are living in some weird, bizarre fantasy. But is this true that we're filled with hate? No, it's a plausibility structure. If we truly believe that when people die without Christ, that they go to everlasting conscious torment in hell, isn't telling the gospel truly loving? Now, Ken Gillette from Penn and Teller is an avowed atheist. Essentially, he said that he doesn't respect Christians who don't tell others about the gospel. Listen to this quote. And it's a little, I mean, he was just having a dialogue, so it's not like super crisp and clean. So you you have to understand. And if you know Penn and Teller, like you kind of get that. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? This is an atheist, by the way. He continues. If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Convicting words from an atheist spoken to Christians. So we fear confronting these plausibility structures or quite simply what people are going to say of us or to us. There is a need to share the gospel because there truly is an eternal, conscious suffering under the wrath of God awaiting those who are not found in Jesus Christ. Though we shouldn't fear contradicting these plausibility structures, we also shouldn't fear proclaiming Christ. We shouldn't fear proclaiming Christ to people like the Epicureans, which I would call today agnostics. So what is an agnostic? An agnostic is someone who might say, maybe there's a God out there, but he really doesn't interact with us and it's fine. These people aren't going to be in your face. They aren't atheists. They're just not sure. They don't know. They live as if they have no connection to God. We are here. God is there and everything's good. Maybe he's there. Maybe he's not. They simply try to live a good life. We should not fear talking to Epicureans or to agnostics. We also shouldn't fear proclaiming Christ to the Stoics, which I would call the spiritualists. These are people who live as if some force is connected to all like pantheism. God is everywhere. God is everything. God is in everything. This is not true, of course. But so they live as if some force is connected to it all. Quite frankly, like Star Wars. They kind of believe in this idea of this force out there, controlling all things, moving all things. They try to live a good life and They try to be in sync with nature and natural laws. They're spiritualists. These are people, and these types of people, they are people, um, and, and quite frankly, there is 
on top of these different types of people, there's these different types of reactions. The first reaction is that we, Christians, you and me, are ignorant and simplistic. We are seen as simple, backward, behind the times. We aren't enlightened, believing in things that are strange and from a bygone era. You all might as well be Puritans and, you know, be sitting with your little hats on, reading a book. You're not with us. You're not progressing. That religion stuff is behind us. We are enlightened now. We know better. The second reaction is that we are babblers. In the original Greek, it's a word could be translated seed picker. What is a seed picker? The images of a bird picking different things and putting them together, all these disparate things, and just arranging them in a different order than they were before. And then being arrogant and telling everybody that this is the way. So Paul, according to them, had nothing new to say. And you hear it in our culture. Oh, you all just take this and that and all this other stuff from all these other places, and it's all the same, right? So seed pickers, that we just marry all this stuff from different religions together, and this is what it is. This is what people often think of you as Christians today. Seed pickers, scavengers, just arranging old things together in a new way. The third reaction is that, quite frankly, you're a heretic. I'm a heretic. We are seen as preaching a message that goes against the prevailing worship worship in the culture, the prevailing, the prevailing world culture. Look at it. It says it in that passage, doesn't it? It says foreign gods, foreign deities. You're, you're a heretic. You're talking about a god who isn't our gods, not one of these gods in the Parthenon. And so... You are seen as someone who is going against the prevailing world current. You are fighting against the plausibility structures of your day. And you are dangerous, going against progress, preaching foreign divinities. The fourth reaction is, oh, that's interesting. Hey, this guy might have a message to tell us. So let's listen more. They see us as teaching something new, something novel. Hey, maybe there's something cool in that. I'm going to listen. These different reactions shouldn't surprise us. We live in a pluralistic society where each person wants to be good and be a god in their own eyes. They want to determine good and evil for themselves. So what do we do? Well, verses 22 to 31 tell us this is our third point that we should proclaim a relevant gospel. We should proclaim a relevant gospel. Paul tells us here that the culture holds on and wants to believe and think that we can worship whatever we want. How do we reach a culture like this? How do you reach a culture that says you can worship and believe whatever you want? Isn't that a problematic? Because then we're just one thing in a smorgasbord of ideas. Paul invites the Athenians and tells us to invite other people in our day that believe this same sort of thing into a life of God that they actually are searching for. God is near them, he says, and he is ready to bring them redemption by the man Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. Now, Paul brings this out in a very relevant way. He quotes three of their own poets, Epimenides, Cleanthes, and Aratus. 
These were poets from about 600 BC, then 300 to 233 BC, and then 315 to about 240 BC. And though these poets, in what he's quoting, are actually talking about Zeus, the head of the Greek gods, Paul uses them to show that the gospel tells of a God who is both transcendent above all and imminent near all. So, first transcendence, Paul says that God is sovereign over all, and he doesn't need anything from you or I. He is all-sufficient. He guides and governs all of history. God is above his creation. God doesn't need our worship. Do you know that? Do you know that God doesn't need this right now? That God doesn't need you to evangelize? Do you know that? He doesn't need it. It's not like, oh, God's sad, and he needs you to make him happy. That's not how it works. And Paul gets to this. God doesn't need our service. But God wants us so that we can know him and find delight in him. And he has a task for us to tell others so that they can find their delight in him too. He values the people that are made in his image and wants others to worship him so they can live in the great delight that he has given us. But he doesn't need us. And Paul says so much. He says that God doesn't live in a temple made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I don't need you. I'm the one who you need. I'm the one who knew you need. You don't have breath. You don't have life. You have nothing without me. I am everything. And I am here to give you life and give you life abundantly. That is what it is. We don't serve God and give him anything. God doesn't need anything from you or me. Do you believe this? Think about the power of the gospel when he loves us but doesn't need us. Can you feel the weight of that? He loves you, but he doesn't need you. But he wants you. He wants me. And he wants me, he wants you to find joy and life because he has given us life and he wants us to experience life in the way that it was meant to be full, joyful. God is distinct from his creation. He is transcendent. But the gospel also tells us that God is imminent. He is with us. He desires a personal relationship with his creatures, and he cares for us as if we are his children. This is to all men. He cares for all men as if they're his children. You understand that, right? That's what Paul talked about. In him we live and move and have our being. He's the father of all. That's what the idea is. Not that he is truly to all a father, right? But he is a father in the sense that he provides for all creatures. He is a father, Abba, to those who know him through Christ, a true father. Now, God is not far away, Paul says. 
Paul is saying that God is real, that God is present. And even though you don't know it, he says that people are searching for him. They're groping for him, blind people in the dark, wandering around, and they're searching for him. You understand this? This shows up in all your life, in my life, in the world's life. What do you think drugs are? What do you think buying stuff is? What do you think living for all the pleasure that we have is? We're, we, we, have a, we have pleasure sensors that are, that, are, that are made for us to delight in God, but we've perverted them and we use them as ends to themselves, not as means to worship and know God. And so we're groping around in the dark, looking, trying to find some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose. And Paul says, God is real. God is present. The great question of our time, the great questions of our time are answered by Paul. Do you know what the great questions are? They're the same questions that your neighbors have. The same questions that they had back in the first century. Life, motion, and being. Life, motion, and being. What do I mean by this? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What is going to fulfill me? Paul answers these questions by saying that God is our life. What is my life about? God is my life. We live to glorify him. God is our motion. He has made us to live our life following him and doing his desires. God is our being. His person and presence satisfy our deepest longings and desires. So Paul appeals to their religiosity, their underlying desire and zeal for something to seek and something to worship. Now, you might say to me, well, James, most people today say they don't worship anything. Well, that's right. They say that. But everybody's longing for something. God, self, other gods, other religions, Satan, pleasure, you name it. Everybody worships. The question is, what are they, what do they worship? And everybody longs for something. The question is, what do they long for? The answer is that they are longing for the God who is near, to be known and to know. They are groping in the dark like blind people, wandering, searching, scraping, and your job, my job, is to point them to the one that they are searching for. So the problem here is that the plausibility structures that our culture, the demons, the principalities and powers in this world, have pushed upon us and our neighbors. They've pushed these things on us. They say there can never be a God who allows pain and suffering. There can never be a God who judges. There can only be a God who loves. And you can do whatever you want. You understand? That's what the culture says. Those are four big things. There can never be a God who allows pain and suffering. There can never be a God who judges. There can only be a God who loves. And you can do whatever you want. Otherwise, I won't believe in them. That's what the world tells you. That's what they say. Everybody says it. Everybody. Atheists say it. I have to tell you, you have to ask me a story about my evangelism internship I had and talking with atheists when you ask them the question of what would you ask God? And they actually answer. Your neighbors and friends will probably believe one of these four things. Let me state these four as questions. Why is there pain and suffering? 
Why would there be judgment? How can God be anything but love? And why can't I do anything I want if I don't hurt anybody? That's the world in four questions. People, you know, here's the deal. People want a fairy tale that doesn't exist. That is completely intellectually and morally impossible. That can only exist in a world without sin, in a world that's not broken. They want heaven to exist in the present. They want perfection without submission, order without law, grace without justice, mercy without a cost. They want everything, and they want to give absolutely nothing in return. There's an answer. The answer is a self-sufficient Lord and master over all, a sovereign God who is in absolute control, a God who doesn't need anything but himself to be happy. A God who doesn't need anything to be complete. A God who can't be added to. A God who's completely independent. A creator who made us and is the source of all life that joins all of us together. This is the point. Our message is simple. God is our creator. God is completely perfect. We are rebellious. And we must be judged and not be allowed in the presence, in his presence, because of our idolatry and sin. But because of his grace, he provides a way to take our judgment, Jesus. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died our death in our place, was buried, but then rose again, and then went to heaven to rule until all his enemies are under his submission. So if we trust in Jesus, that he satisfies the justice that we deserved, and took it in our place, and then gives us his perfection, we can find redemption, we can find peace with God. This is why Paul says that a judgment is coming by the one who has risen from the dead. It is all through God's grace. So Paul tells them to come to repent and to believe. So God is a God of grace in Christ, and he applies faith to us. And if we believe and trust in him by the Holy Spirit, changing our hearts, if our neighbors do, then they will ultimately be used to glorify God. And that is the point. So finally, briefly, the reactions that we can expect, you see in verses 32 to 34. The fourth point, we should expect certain reactions. There are three. Scoffing, I want to hear more and I believe. So the first reaction that you should expect is scoffing. You should expect people to mock you because they think that you have just a foolish message. They might say, all you have for me is Jesus? A crucified and risen guy from the dead? That's it? That's all you've got? And we say, yes, that is all, but he is all. And he is in all. And through him, all things hold together. And that God who sustains your breath came down for you. That you might know and have life abundantly and share life in the present and eternity with him. That is our message. That is all we have. That is all we preach. And that is all. It's the point of the universe. This is our message, brothers and sisters. This is your message. You don't have anything else to preach. You have nothing else to offer them. You can talk about your superior ethics 
It's true, but who cares? They'd rather just do whatever they want. That doesn't mean anything to them. You can argue them till you're blue in the face about a million different things. But the message you have is that God came to earth and died for you. That's the message you have. Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen, and coming again to judge. And the question that we have for people is, are you in or out? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, I will serve. I will worship the Lord. And so it's a simple message. And people are going to look at you and say that we are saying what we're saying is simple, is dumb, is foolish. And some may even say, I don't even want to talk to you again. The second reaction that you should spec is one of interest in hearing more. Others say, wow, really? This kind of cool. Can you tell me more about that? Some will inevitably have their interest peaked. And we should continue the dialogue as long as they have not shut that dialogue down. And the third reaction that we should expect is belief. Others will inevitably, by the regenerating work of God, take the foolishness of what you preach and make them believe. Do you understand that? That you preach, and when you preach the word of God, his words will never come back to void. They will either bring life or they will bring judgment. And your job is to preach those words of life and allow God to move in whoever he moves and trust his work. That's your job. And so you then take those people who believe and fold them into the church and help them to become disciples who make other disciples and who just do the exact same thing you did with them. That they will tell everybody about this Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. So how do you apply a text like this? A text that's just about Paul preaching the gospel. Well, here's the point. You all are in a particular place at a particular time. Paul talked about that God has set aside times and seasons. You all are in a particular place. You have friends, you have neighbors, you have family, you have coworkers, you have random people, supposedly, that you meet. And that you know. And we are commissioned by Jesus to understand that God has put people in our lives so that we may share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. We are commissioned by Jesus to go and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded us. And so we must do this, not by just simply like trying to say things that are going to get make people happy with you or that they're going to somehow, you know, find some hook to believe. What you disciple people into is what you, what you disciple with is what you disciple people into. What you preach them is Jesus Christ, him dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, and coming again. That is your message. Nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less. And then you unfold them and teach them to observe his commandments, his laws, his rules, so that they might have better lives and live as to please God. So we pray. We see those in our lives. We pray that God, as we talked about last week, will give us open doors for the gospel. 
And we pray that we would have boldness to be able to share the gospel. And we share the gospel with them. We tell them that there is a God, that they are created by him, that he is close by. And all that they have to do is repent and trust in Jesus and trust in his resurrection. And they too will have eternal life and experience the joy of God in their soul. Father, we need your help. It's so hard. We talk about these things and we talk about how these things are are just a given that we should understand them, but we are afraid. We're just people made of dust. We need your help. We need your spirit. We need your grace. Would you come? And would you make yourself known to us? And would you empower us to love you so dearly that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, and we might tell others about this great love that we know that you have put in our hearts. And so we praise you and thank you and ask that you would empower us for your mission. And would you enable us to preach the good news of the hope of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.